Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Happy Mother's Day uh, to all the women in our church. Um, I don't know if you know this, but moms, you have a privilege of representing God to your children in a way that is more difficult for men. Uh, It is said that God is like a mother hen uh, who protects and nurtures her chicks. And so I think, at least I know in my family, uh, my wife is a much better nurturer than I am of my children. And so she displays God's nurturing character. And so, so thankful for for moms and for how God uses you to show us who God is. And so praise God for you. Um, We do have at the end of the service um, a special treat that will be handed out to all women. Uh, Really, if you're out of high school, uh, maybe even even in high school, you help out with children's ministry, small chocolate treat. Uh, If David Gallagher is handing it out, beware, he's probably stolen half of it. And so we have not assigned him to that duty because uh, we wanted to make no provision for his flesh. So uh, he, he loves chocolate, and he's been talking about it, and so watch out. He might snatch it from you. Uh, if you would, please open up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it's page 842 in the red Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep, but you will need the Bible, and you will need to keep the Bible open throughout the duration of our teaching. Uh, Just prior to the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus famously fed 5,000, probably more 10 to 20,000. It was 5,000 men plus women and children. It was one of the most amazing miracles that Jesus had done. Uh, And so he took five loaves and two fishes and prayed to God and multiplied them to feed all of these people. And after they were fed, the apostles gathered 12 basketfuls of leftovers and bring them back to Jesus. Now, what is very interesting is Jesus doesn't let them sit there and bask and marvel in the glory of that miracle, um, but he directs them quickly to leave. And that's where we pick up the passage today. Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 56. Uh, We're going to start by just reading through verse 52. And again, it's page 842 in the Red Bible. Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to a story that is familiar to many of us. And yet the riches within it are far more than we could possibly imagine. And so God, help us to see the story afresh, apply it to our lives and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Shortly after Trish and I were married, we lived in Bloomer, Wisconsin, which is about 45 minutes north of Eau Claire, if you know where that is. And we had a great house and a great property. It was five acres with a trout stream, an additional 30 acres that no one could access except for us because it was a floodplain that never flooded. It was a great piece of property. And in the midst of living there, after about nine months, uh, God was calling us to go to seminary, to move to St. Louis to do that. And so we were going to have, to have to sell that property. And we thought, oh, that's no problem. It's going to sell very quickly. It's a very attractive property. Plus, God is calling us to go to seminary. God is going to sell this property. Well, as the months went on, the house didn't sell. There wasn't a lot of showings. Finally, we came to the time where we had to move to St. Louis because Trish was going to be starting teaching down there and I was going to be starting school. And so we moved down to St. Louis and for a time, we were paying, in essence, two mortgages or two rents. And I just remember it being such an awful time. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but we were there. We had one income. We were paying for seminary and we were paying for two houses. And so we were what people call house poor. Like we couldn't do anything. We were very conservative on all the finances. And I remember at the time just being overwhelmed with fear, with anxiety. It was keeping me up at night. I was angry at God. Lord, what is going on? Why are you not selling my, my house? You see, in that moment, I trusted Jesus for my salvation, but I was not trusting Jesus for my situation. I still struggle with that today. Uh, if I'm going into a conversation that I know is going to be difficult and it's a couple days off, I will stir with anxiety and panic and fear. Uh, every Sunday I come here and I preach to you about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. But on Saturday, there's many times where I'm just a wreck, like, Lord, what am I going to say on Sunday morning? I can't get it all together. You see, there are so many times where I trust God for my salvation, but I don't trust him for my situation. I'm curious if you can relate. I wonder if there's anyone here who trusts that Jesus has died and rose again from the dead to give them eternal life. You have saving faith, but you live in constant fear of what other people think of you. You're afraid that you won't get good enough grades to get into the college that you want. You're afraid that you won't find the love of your life. You have saving faith, but you are afraid that the government is going to ruin every part of your life that your spouse will abandon you, that the physical pain will overcome you. Moms, maybe you're here today and you have saving faith in Jesus, but you are 
afraid that you are a failure as a mom. You are scared that your children will not turn out the way you want them to be. You are constantly anxious that something bad is going to happen to your kids. You have saving faith in Jesus, but you lack situational faith in Jesus. What keeps you up at night? What makes you anxious? What scares you? Where is it that you have saving faith in Jesus, but you lack situational faith in Jesus? Whatever that stormy situation is, Jesus tells us in today's passage, take heart and do not be afraid. I don't know about you, but it's, in my mind, I think, Jesus, that's easy for you to say, right? You don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. How can you say, take heart and do not be afraid? This is a very scary situation. But the only reason why Jesus can say, take heart and do not be afraid, is if he is not only Lord of our salvation, but also the Lord of your situation. And so Jesus comes and he says, take heart, do not be afraid. And there are three reasons why Jesus can say this. I only have two listed in your bulletin because the third point came up yesterday before, after the bulletin was printed. But the first reason why Jesus can tell us to take heart and not be afraid in whatever situation you are in is because Jesus sends us into our stormy situation. I call it a stormy situation because for us, figuratively, these situations are stormy, but for the apostles, it was literally stormy. Uh, They were out at sea on the Sea of Galilee, and there was a great wind that overcame them for several hours. Look with me at verse 45. It says, immediately, right after the miracle, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Again, notice the urgency of this situation. Immediately, Jesus sends them away without him in the boat. He does it even before the crowds are dismissed. He says, disciples, you need to go away. And he does it with intentionality. He tells them where to go. He says, go to Bethsaida. And so if you look at a map, I have this map from casualenglishbible.com. By the way, did you notice this screen worked during the first part of the service? That's what's weird with this screen. It, It goes in and out. Anyways, at least we got one. If they both go out, we're going to have to face the back of the sanctuary, which would be weird. But, but so, so it is thought that the feeding of the 5,000 happened in here. It's just a guess. Uh, it could have happened over here. It could have happened down here. But, but the guess is that it happened in here. And so when the feeding of the 5,000 is over, Jesus puts his disciples in a boat and he says, go to Bethsaida, which is not that far away, but is on the other side of the Jordan River. And so he tells them to go that direction. And while they are on their way there, they have these heavy winds from the northeast come down upon them. Uh, This was a regular occurrence, uh, and it still is a regular occurrence over the Sea of Galilee, and it's called a sharkia, which is Arabic for shark, so it's a shark wind. So so you've heard of the movie Sharknado. Uh, I'd like to think it came from this passage right here, But, but there's this shark wind that comes out of the northeast because The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, and so the wind just sweeps down and is is horrific. Uh, It is a violent downdraft, and so most fishermen, most people that would boat, would not go out in the evening 
uh, when these disciples are setting out to go across to Bethsaida. And yet Jesus is adamant. Immediately, before the crowds are dismissed, immediately, you must go. Why was Jesus so adamant that they would go right now when it was approaching the worst time of the night? Well, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons was because Jesus was sending them into the storm. Why was Jesus sending them into the storm? Well, look down with me at verse 51 through 52, and and we can see why Jesus is sending them into the storm. Verse 51, this is after, uh, I mean, you, you, you know what happens. Jesus walks on the water. He gets in the boat. He calms it. This is after Jesus walks on the water. It says, verse 51, it says, and Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And then listen closely. It says, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. You see, the primary reason for Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 was not to feed the 5,000. He was accomplishing that. He wanted to provide that for them. But that was not the primary purpose of his miracle of feeding the 5,000. Jesus' primary purpose of feeding the 5,000 was to reveal who he is, that he is the bread of life. That he is manna who has come down from heaven. That he is God in the flesh. I mean, think about it. Where else does God provide manna for people in the wilderness? It's when they are in the exodus. And it is God, God alone, who provides it for 40 years for the people wandering in the wilderness. And yet he provided just enough food for the day. But Jesus comes as the bread of life. And he provides an abundance of manna for the people. So much so that there are 12 basketfuls, again, that are picked up afterwards. This miracle was primarily to show that Jesus is God. But as verse 52 says, the apostles did not understand it. And it says this, which is often said of Jesus' opponents, but it says, but their hearts were hardened. Why did Jesus send them into the storm? Because what they did not understand about Jesus in the times of plenty He was going to teach them through the terror of the storm. What they did not understand in the abundance of the feeding of 5,000, he was going to teach them in their toil in rowing against the wind. Jesus sent his disciples into the stormy situation because they had not yet understood who he is and they so desperately needed to. We have some friends who recently told us that the most terrifying thing they ever went through is when they found out that their three-year-old baby girl was diagnosed with leukemia. Up to that point, life for this couple was good. Uh, they, They didn't have a lot of worries or wants. Business was going well. God had blessed them abundantly. And to them, Uh, Jesus was just this guy you talked to for an hour on Sunday mornings. That was pretty much the extent of their relationship with Jesus. But this woman who was pregnant with their second child was taking their oldest down to Milwaukee and back on a regular occurrence to get them treatments. And she said that during that time, this is what she says, quote, the Lord healed me so much during that time. The Lord helped me cope with what was unbearable to deal with alone. She went on to say that, that as a result of this storm in her life, she went seeking God and his understanding and not her own that she became hungry for the word of God, that she dove into Bible studies and her and her husband started studying the Bible together and praying together. You see, they kind of knew about Jesus in their time of plenty, but they didn't know Jesus intimately until the storm. 
I mentioned this two weeks ago, but, but I've been more and more convicted that, that I idolize the thought of a cushy Christianity, a Christianity where there are no storms, where there is no hard rowing, where everything is easy in life. I want a cushy Christianity. But the problem with that is that Jesus loves us too much to give us a cushy Christianity. Jesus wants us to know him in ways that we will not know him if all of our life is a cushy Christianity. Jesus, by his grace, sends us into stormy situations to reveal more of him to us in the way that our hearts will not grasp in times of plenty because we have hard hearts. You know, I've said this many times before, and many of you have even said it back to me. But when you talk to people who go through stormy, horrendous situations, they would often say afterwards, I never want to go through that storm again. But I wouldn't trade that storm for the world because it brought me closer to Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think almost every single Christian in here could say that. The feeding of the 5,000, the plenty, was not enough to soften the hard hearts of the disciples. They needed the storms. So do you. So do I. And moms, I know your heart is to protect your children, and that is good, but your children need storms too because they need to know Jesus. Our loving Savior sends us into storms to reveal himself to us. And that brings us to our second point, that Jesus reveals himself in our stormy situations. We've kind of talked about this, but, but how does Jesus reveal himself? What does Jesus show about himself in our stormy situations? If you're like me, maybe you've read this account several times again and have become a bit bored of it. However, as we dig deep into this, we will see uh, that it is revealing something about us. Julia, can you put up the next main point, please? There we go. All right, verse 45, look there with me. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. I know we read this, to Bethsaida while dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So why did Jesus go up on the mountain to pray? Well, one reason obviously always is to commune with God. It's great to go and to pray and commune with God. And so if you think you're too busy to pray, you're not Jesus. Jesus had time to stop and pray. And so that's one reason was to commune with God. But I think the other reason why Jesus went up on the mountain to pray was to ask the Father to soften the hard hearts of the disciples, that they could see Jesus for who he is. Verse 47, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And so Jesus is on the land, and somehow Jesus sees them out on the Sea of Galilee and sees that they are struggling. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know if this is a natural scene, like, you know, if you're on the beach and you see a ship out at sea with its lights on, it could have been that. It could have been a supernatural scene, like when Jesus saw Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree. But whichever way it was, it's making the point that even in the midst of our struggling storms, even when we do not see Jesus, Jesus always sees us in the storm because Jesus is God. Verse 48 continues. It says, in about the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 to 6 a.m., so it has been a long, hard, difficult night. About 3 to 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea. 
Now, before we dig into this a little bit, there, this is going to come up multiple times in our passage. I need to introduce you to a literary work called the Septuagint. Some of you are familiar with it. Many of you probably are not, and that's okay. What the Septuagint is, is the Septuagint, well, let me back up. The, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew language. The New Testament is written in Greek, which was the language of the day. And so what the Septuagint is, is it is a Hebrew, uh, it is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so about two to 300 years before Jesus, 72 Bible scholars got together, Jewish scholars from the six, uh, six from each tribe of Israel, and they translated the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, into Greek, which was the global language of the day, at least around the Mediterranean. And the reason why this is so important for us, it's the most important translation we have, is because what the Septuagint does is it helps us make connections between the New Testament and the Old Testament. For example, in this instance, Jesus walking on water uh, echoes something that's written in Job 9.8. In Job 9.8, it says that God is the one who walks on the water. The Greek word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is peripeteon epithalasis. When we get to the Gospel of Mark, and it's talking about Jesus walking on water, it uses the exact same Greek phrase. And so Mark writes this in such a way to help us make the connection between what Job said and what Jesus did. Job says God walks on water. Jesus walks on water. It has been said that the gospel of John tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh, but the gospel of Mark shows us that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so what Mark is doing here by using this language is he is showing us that Jesus walks where only God can walk. That Jesus walks on water because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God of the sea. He is God of the chaos. He's God of the danger. He is the God of our storm. Verse 48 continues. Again, in about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. This is a really strange phrase. If you've ever read this before, you might think, oh, that's odd. I mean, was Jesus trying to sneak around them and not be noticed and they found out that he was there? Uh, was Jesus trying to walk on the water to take a shortcut and he was kind of like at a distance, kind of like, see you later, suckers? Like, what does it mean that Jesus meant to pass by them? Again, the Septuagint is so very, very important for us here to understand what Mark is trying to communicate. You see, there is a place in the Septuagint, multiple places in the Septuagint, where the Greek word used here for pass by, which is perikomai, is used. And one of those places is in Exodus chapter 33. After God makes a covenant with Israel, we read this. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass. That's perikomai, the Greek word used in the gospel mark for when Jesus wanted to pass by the boat. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is how awesome our God, this is how mighty our God is. This is how majestic our God is, is that if we got a glimpse of the glory of God, we would die. 
And so God cannot show himself fully to Moses. He can only pass by and reveal a bit of his glory. The passage continues and it says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, same word, parakomai, by I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. When Mark uses this strange wording in, in, in this passage, he is hearkening the people back to Exodus chapter 33, when God and his glory passed by Moses. Mark was claiming, again, that Jesus is God in the flesh. As Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. And the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't just pass by them, but Jesus comes to them. Jesus gets in the boat with them. Verse 49, it continues and it says, but when they saw him walking on the water, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, literally screamed, for they all saw and were terrified. Could you imagine if you're on Lake Winnebago in the middle and there's great wind and the waves are crashing and you see someone walking on the water? I, I think we would scream too. We'd say, oh man, this, is it a ghost? Like, what is this? It's, it's scary. It's frightening. But in the disciples' case, it's a little bit different. The disciples had just seen Jesus multiply the loaves and fishes, showing forth his divinity. They should have known that anything was possible for Jesus. But again, their hearts were hardened, and they did not understand his identity by the loaves and the fishes. And so when Jesus starts walking on the water, they are terrified. And then Jesus identifies himself. And again, he does it in a very particular and intentional way. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, it's okay, it's just me, it's Jesus. He doesn't say that. Look at what he says in verse 50. For they saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In this short statement, Jesus makes two exhortations. The first is to take heart, be of good courage, be comforted, but also do not be afraid. Don't be scared of me, don't be scared of the storm. Why can Jesus say that? Well, sandwiched between these two exhortations, Jesus identifies himself in a majestic way. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's me, it's Jesus. But rather, Jesus says, it is I. In the Greek, it is ego, a me. It is I am. Again, the Septuagint is, is a connection for us here to the Old Testament. But, but in the beginning of the book of Exodus, before Moses goes into Egypt to, to bring the people out of slavery, God appears to him in a burning bush. And we read this in Exodus chapter 3. Do we have Exodus 3? There we are. It says this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What's the name of God? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am. Ego, Amy, who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, Ego, Amy, has sent me to you. 
I am is the holy name of God. I am is the name that, that the Jews would not even utter out of fear that they would use it in vain. I am is the name that, that the scribes would bathe before and after they wrote because it was such a holy name. And yet here in this passage, Jesus is saying, take heart, be of good courage. The I am is here. The I am has arrived. On a blog this week, I was reading a story. Um, it said, the, the title is, We Are All Grateful for Our Mothers. This is a story from Lawrenceville, Georgia, Friday 11th, 1982, so, so quite a while back. It says, February 11th, 1982 was a day like any other. Tony Cavallo was in the driveway fixing his 1964 Chevy Impala. Suddenly, the jack collapsed, and he was knocked unconscious, pinned under the car. His mother came to the rescue with superhuman strength. With a prayer in her heart, she reached down and lifted the car while the neighbor boy, Johnny Edwards, ran calling for help. And I love this part. She says, I was kicking him, saying, get out, get out. While waiting for help to arrive, she said it in an interview, quickly the neighbors rushed to help and pulled Tony to safety. The article goes on and says, wow, with her phenomenal supermom strength, she picked up the car and kept it off her son until help arrived. Now that's the power of a mom who loves. <laughs> you know, it's often in times of tragedy, in the storm, when there's chaos, when there's crisis, that our strengths are shown forth. It is the same with God. Friends, whatever stormy situation is haunting you, Take heart and be not afraid. The ego Amy, the great I am, the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ is with you always to the very end of the age through his Holy Spirit. For he is for you and he is in control of all things. And so we need to take heart and not be afraid because Jesus is caring for us. This is proven in verse 51 as Jesus' self-revelation is is continued. Verse 51 says, and Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Let me ask you, who can make the wind cease? Can the weatherman make the wind cease? Can a, can a, can a, can a strong man make the wind cease? Can a, can a billionaire make the wind cease? Only God can make the wind cease. Again, verse 52, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. At the time of the feeding of the 5,000, they totally missed the point of the miracle. They did not understand that Jesus is the manna from heaven, the bread of life, God in the flesh. But after this storm that Jesus sent them into, they finally got it. They finally understood Jesus' divinity. And we know this from Matthew's account of this story. In Matthew chapter 14, it says, and when Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. If you are overwhelmed with anxiety, remind yourself of who Jesus is, of his special presence with you, and worship him. In the storms of life, we can take heart and not be afraid, because Jesus, who is with us, is the same 
God who walks on the water. Jesus is the same God who, who passed before Moses. Jesus is the same great I am that appeared in the burning bush and spoke from the burning bush. Jesus is the creator God who stopped the wind and the waves on the sea of Galilee. And that same Jesus is with us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the God of your storm. Worship him. So just to recap, Jesus sends us into the stormy situations for our good. Jesus reveals himself as God in our stormy situations. But finally, Jesus delivers us from our stormy situations. This won't take quite as long. But again, in verse 51, Jesus reveals uh, himself as God by making the wind cease, which astounds them. And then we get to verse 53, and it says, When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. You can imagine how relieved these men must have felt to step on dry land. Jesus had delivered them from their storm, but what is interesting here is that Jesus did not deliver them to the place that they were expecting. Again, if you look back at the map up here, they're in this area. Jesus sends them to Bethsaida, which is over here, and the wind is so bad, and the waves are so bad, and yet when Jesus gets in the boat, also they suddenly arrive at shore, so they don't end up in Bethsaida. Instead, they end up over here in Gennesaret, the region of Gennesaret. And I think it's a great reminder to us that as we come to Jesus and we pray for deliverance to Jesus, that Jesus will deliver us, but it may not be in the time or the place or the way that you have recommended. Jesus is God. He knows better than us. He will deliver us in the way that he sees fit, that is best for us and for his glory. And so we see that here in verse 54. It says, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Could you imagine the scene? Kids running to their dying parents, women running to their children with leprosy, brothers running to their brothers who are crippled, and they say, he is here. The, the wonder worker is here. The miracle worker is here. Jesus is here. Hurry up. Let's get scared. Let's go. Let's go to Jesus. Let's go. Let's see if he can heal you. And then verse 56. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And then hear this. And as many as touched it were made well. I have good news. All who come to Jesus will be made well. All who come to Jesus will be delivered. It is true in that day. It is true today as well. And the reason we know this is because God the Father sent Jesus into the ultimate storm. The storm of the fury of his wrath against sin upon the cross. And it was at the cross that God revealed himself to us that he is the supreme just judge that punishes every sin, but he is also extremely loving and merciful and kind in putting our sin, our penalty upon Christ for us. And then on the third day, God the Father delivered Jesus from the dead, raising him up to everlasting life, guaranteeing that we too will be delivered from our disease-ridden, broken, worn-out mortal bodies. You see, friends, all who come to Jesus will be delivered from their sin, will be delivered from their sickness, will be delivered from death itself. But you may be hoping for Bethsaida, and he says, 
It's in Gennesaret. It may not be in this world. You can pray, pray, Lord, heal me in this world. But for sure, he will heal you in the world to come. And so for the Christian, the question is not if God will heal me. It is when will God heal me? Pray for healing now, but know that healing will come. Whatever storm you are in, come to Jesus and you will be delivered from your sin. You will be rescued from the storm and you will be healed from your suffering, either in this world or the world to come. Um, I saw an article this week about, I'm going to end with this. I saw an article this week about how a child typically views their mom throughout different stages of life, and it resonated with me. I don't know if it resonates with you, but at four years of age, a child thinks, my mommy can do anything. Eight years of age, my mom knows a lot. Twelve years of age, my mother doesn't really know quite everything. Sixteen years of age, mother, she's hopelessly old-fashioned. Eighteen years of age, that old woman, she's way out of date. 25 years of age, well, she might know a little bit. 35 years of age, before I make this decision, I should get mom's opinion. 45 years of age, I wonder what mom would have thought about this. 65 years of age, I wish I could talk it over with mom. Moms are a precious gift from God. A precious gift that that we tend to appreciate more and more the older that we get. A precious gift that we should thank God for on a daily basis. But as great as moms are, even moms have their limitations. Our moms like us are imperfect sin strugglers. Our moms like us are are not all-knowing, not all-powerful, and not all-present. Our moms like us will pass away. And so in the storms of life when you cannot turn to mommy... You can always turn to Jesus. Christian, you trust Jesus for your salvation. Maybe it's time to trust Jesus for your situation. Wherever your storm is, whatever you're you're in, turn and trust Jesus, for he is the one who has ordained the storm for your good. Turn and trust in Jesus because he is the only one who will come to you in the storm and reveal his divinity, love, and mercy. Turn and trust in Jesus because he has promised to deliver you from all of your storms. Whatever your situation is, take heart and do not be afraid. For Jesus, the ego a me, the great I am, is with you in your storm. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for this passage because we too are hard-hearted people. We too need to be reminded and shown and proven again and again that you are sufficient, that you are Savior and that you are God and that you are with us and you have our storms in the palm of your hand. And so Jesus, I pray for many here today that are going through a difficult storm, that are fretting and anxious and overwhelmed. Pray, Jesus, that they would come to you, that I would come to you, that we would come to you, and that we would trust you in the storm, knowing that you are using it for your good and that you have power and authority over it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.